Well, I invite you to grab your Bible and turn to the very last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. This is our fourth and final sermon in the series, in our Advent series of uh, the Minor Prophets, Messianic Prophecies from the Minor Prophets. Next week is Christmas, and I'll be preaching from the New Testament on the story of the birth of the Messiah, but this is the fourth and final sermon on the anticipation of the Messiah, the prophecies in the Minor Prophets about the Messiah. Throughout this series, Susan has been posting fragments of the different texts that I've been preaching on from the Minor Prophets, and she's been, I don't know if you can see it from where you sit, but she's been highlighting and bolding important words from the text. And this week, she has chosen to highlight the words purify and refine. That's very well done. Those are definitely key words that we'll be focusing on this morning from this passage, purify and refine. So Malachi in chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 6. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand and apply his word. Holy Father, we have now read your eternal word. We've heard it. I pray now you'd help us to understand it, that you would enable us by your spirit to believe it, and that you would empower us to apply it to our lives. I thank you that we stand in the long line of men and women and young people who have sat under the authority of your word, who have lived our lives believing your word, hoping in your promises, and walking in the ways and paths that you lay out for us. It's a blessing and an honor, Lord, to stand in that tradition. You have called us as your people, and we gladly follow where you lead. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the title of this sermon, if you've looked in your bulletin, the title is How to Wait for the Messiah. How to Wait 
for the Messiah. Waiting, the idea of waiting is baked into this passage, right? It's right in there because of the way that Malachi uses the future tense, right? So you feel it. God is speaking through Malachi and he says, I will send someone who will prepare and the Lord will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant will come. All of those future tense, right? That's the gonna happen verb, right? The future tense of the verb to be means that these things aren't yet. They haven't happened yet, but they will be one day. Which means Israel is waiting. They're waiting for these things to take place. The people in Malachi's time were waiting for the arrival of this Messiah that the prophets keep talking about and alluding to and anticipating. They're waiting for him to come. This deliverer, this savior, this suffering servant, this anointed one, this one who is going to come and is going to fix everything that's wrong in the world and is going to make everything right. right. There was this belief, this prophetic belief that one day one person's going to come and he's going to make things right that are wrong. And we're waiting for him. Now we don't today find ourselves in exactly the same situation that Malachi's listeners were in, but our situation is parallel to that situation. For us, the Messiah has indeed already entered into the world. That happened. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. But still, we too, we who find ourselves on the other side of that historical event, not waiting for it, but looking back on it, still we're waiting. We're waiting for him to return again. So what can we learn about how to wait for the Messiah from this passage in Malachi? Right? This is is a waiting passage. What can we learn from it about our wait, the way that we wait? I want to highlight three things. First, as we wait, It's important for us to acknowledge the darkness. That's part of the waiting. Second, as we wait, it's important for us to look for the light breaking through the darkness. That too is part of the waiting. Looking for light to break through the darkness. And then third, as we wait, it's important for us to believe, to really believe, deep down in our hearts, to believe that the light will prevail as we wait. So those are the three things. Acknowledge the, nar- the darkness, look for the light, and believe that the light wins. That's how we wait for the Messiah. So we'll take each in turn. First, as we wait, it is important for us, as we wait, to be honest, to be realistic, to recognize and acknowledge the darkness. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend that it's not there. Now, I think, as I thought about this, I think we're particularly well-positioned to do this here in Alberta in the middle of winter. (laughs) These days, the hours of light are extremely short compared with the hours of darkness, right? These days, it feels like, I feel like the sun just kind of like hesitantly pops his head up over the horizon for a few hours and then it's like he loses his courage or something and just runs away, right? Now, I don't prefer that. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't love that about where we live. But I do find it helpful in terms of setting the scene for our Christmas celebration. It's good. It's good that we get to experience this season of darkness 
uh, to prepare our hearts for a Christmas celebration. It's a reminder. It is a reminder that this is a broken world. It is. This is a world that is shrouded in darkness. And this is a world in desperate need of a Savior. If it wasn't for the darkness, there would be no need for the Savior to enter in. In this passage, the darkness of the world is acknowledged, honestly, realistically. This passage speaks of judgment. It lists a number of evil practices that are happening at the time. It talks about sorcery and adultery and lying and oppression. And it asks these rhetorical questions. Imagine you're listening to Malachi. He's asking these questions. It's the Lord speaking through him. He says, who can endure the day of his coming? Right? That his coming is the Messiah coming, the Savior coming, the messenger of the covenant coming. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Now, the implied answer to those rhetorical questions is nobody. Nobody's going to be able to endure this. Nobody's going to be able to stand when he arrives. Those questions are referring to the time when the Messiah comes. Now, for many of the Israelites at the time, the general belief was the Messiah will appear and he will usher in this beautiful time of unparalleled and unbroken blessing. All the bad things in the world are going to be undone and everything is going to be made good. And Malachi is pointing out to his listeners, actually... Just want you to know that when the Messiah finally does come, it's going to be a little bit more scary than you think. Why is that? Well, because darkness is not a friend of the light. And this passage contains an honest acknowledgement of the darkness. And the implication is that the darkness is not just out there in the world, but the darkness is also in here, in my heart. All of us. Malachi is saying, look, the darkness isn't just over there with the Canaanites and the Hittites. The darkness is with the Israelites. The darkness is with the Ebenezerites. Who can stand? Who can endure when the perfect, pure, and powerful Messiah arrives? No one. None of us. None of us. The idea of all bad things coming to an end, being judged and coming to an end, is good news right up until the moment when you realize that, wait a minute, actually, many of the things that I've done and said and thought are really not that good. And if this coming one is going to administer justice for every bad thing that's ever been done, if he's going to purge the darkness from the world, well, then you and I are not going to escape that unharmed. So Malachi is saying, look, don't pretend everything's okay when it isn't. Don't look the other way when you see darkness, but acknowledge it. Acknowledge the brokenness of the world. And don't pretend that the darkness is only out there, somebody else's darkness, but acknowledge that it's in you too. That's the point of the two metaphors that he gives, that are highlighted behind me, the two metaphors, right? He will be like a refiner's fire, and he will be like a launderer's soap. Malachi says the, the, the Levites are going to receive a laundering. They're going to receive a blast from the refiner's fire when the messenger of the covenant finally arrives. 
And that applies not just to the Levites, but to all of us. We're all impure. We're all in need of a good scrubbing. And that's the point of the metaphor. The refiner's fire, that's a fairly common biblical metaphor. I'm sure you've, you, you, you can picture that and you've heard sermons about the refiner's fire. It's a metaphor and, and the fire heats up the metal so hot that the impurities within the press, the metal is precious but there's impurities and the fire is so hot that the impurities are burned away and then it leaves only the precious metal. The fuller's soap is an even more graphic metaphor. Uh, back then, the fuller, the launderer, the people who cleaned the clothes, they didn't use bar soap. They didn't have bars of soap. They didn't use liquid detergent. Uh, they, they had this very strong alkaline solution. It was made from a combination of, of wood ash and, brace yourself for this, putrid urine. And they would take the wood ash and that, and they would mix it together, and then the fullers, they would work outside of the city gates due to the awful smell. They were, had to work outside the city gates. And they would soak the clothes in that strong, smelly solution. And then they would beat the clothes to get them clean. And then they would rinse them in the river. And then the sun would dry them. And I don't know what they did about the smell, how they got the smell out of there. So Malachi is saying, look, I want you to know that you are currently in no condition to endure the arrival of the coming messenger of the covenant. You are soiled, you are stained, you are going to need a purging. Now, you can choose to hear that message and deny it if you want, or you can hear that message and you can be offended by it if you want. I have no doubt that some of his listeners at the time we're thinking, come on, Malachi, lighten up, man. Right, we know no one's perfect, but, but so what? Have, have, Malachi, haven't you heard of grace? Don't you get it? The arrival of the Messiah is supposed to be a happy prophecy, Malachi. So why are you talking about judgment and refiner's fires and fuller's soap? Don't you know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to fix everything and we're going to sing and dance and it's going to be one giant party? People who take that view seem to have forgotten that the Lord is merciful and compassionate, but he is also a consuming fire. And somehow the Lord is able to be both of those things perfectly at the same time. Merciful and compassionate, consuming fire. That is both comforting and terrifying at the same time. So yes, the arrival of the Messiah will be a blessing, but it will be a painful blessing. A painful blessing. What is a painful blessing? A painful blessing, uh, I, I'll, give you a, I'll give you an illustration. A painful blessing is like, like antiseptic on a deep cut. That's a painful blessing. Right? Prior to the availability of antiseptic, wounds that would get infected would uh, often result in unnecessary fatalities. They could have easily been avoided if they were properly cleaned, but they weren't, so the people ended up dying needlessly because of the wounds that they received and the infection that, infection that came afterwards. Prior to, I did a little research this week on this. Prior to the 20th century, infection was the number one killer of soldiers. Most war fatalities prior to the 20th century didn't happen on the battlefield. They happened after the battle. 
no matter how slight a wound, once the skin was broken, right, vulnerable, then the chances were good that a deadly bacterial infestation would lead to multiple operations, amputations, and often death. Hospitals were filled with patients slowly healing over the course of months, and then a secondary infection would take hold of them, and then they would die. That's not the case anymore, because now we have antiseptic, and we can pour it onto a cut, and it creates a clean and sterile environment so that the wound can heal. That is a blessing. That is a blessing for sure, but it is a painful blessing because it stings. It hurts when you pour that on the cut. Right? It's way better than dying, but it still hurts. I still, I, I still remember for me, and I'm sure you have stories like this too, where I was helping a friend move, this is years ago, and it, he had a really old, ugly couch. And I reached under it to pick it up, and there was like a, a rusty spring that was sticking out underneath, and it had a sharp edge, and it just raked right across the palm of my hand and, and ripped it open, and my palm was bleeding, and my friend didn't have any like actual antiseptic, like, like in a medicine case or something, or a first aid kit. All he had was hand sanitizer. And so he went and got that and sprayed it uh, onto my cut on my hand. And it really hurt. Like that, that sting like that makes you sick to your stomach, that kind of hurt. That's how I remember it exactly right now as I'm telling this. It really, really hurt. But... It didn't get infected. I didn't die. So it was a painful blessing. A painful blessing. That's an important category for us. A painful blessing. That's how Malachi describes the arrival of the Messiah. It's a painful blessing. It's a painful blessing. He says, look, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be great. It's going to be both better and more terrifying than you think. Well, what's the application for us? For us, Jesus has come. He has come, bringing light into the world. And yet we too now find ourselves waiting for his return. And we would do well to acknowledge the darkness in the world and in our hearts in order to prepare ourselves for his arrival. Right? And it's not hard to acknowledge the darkness in the world. You just look around and you see it. Right? Famine, disease, natural disasters, corrupt governments, oppression, wars. We see it everywhere. We know. But we also need to look into our own hearts and recognize there's darkness there too. Well, and then what? Just, just stare at it and feel depressed and disgusted with ourselves? No. We identify those areas of darkness. We confess them. We repent of them. Repentance is what Malachi is calling his people to, and it's still an essential part of the life of faith. Repentance is the painful, beautiful, blessed process of seeing sin, acknowledging sin, grieving over sin, confessing sin, and being forgiven of our sin. It's like being washed with fuller soap or being refined with fire, being made pure, It's a painful blessing. It's an important thing for us to do as we await the return of the king. Okay, so next, after we acknowledge the darkness, while we await the arrival of the Messiah, we should secondly look for the light breaking through. 
Look for it, expect it, believe it, and look for the light breaking through the darkness. This passage is not all doom and gloom. This passage is full of hope and light. It's against a backdrop of darkness that light shines brightest. So Malachi's name means messenger. That word means messenger. And in this passage, he's engaged in a little wordplay with his name and what it means. He refers to two other messengers beside himself. There's a messenger who's a forerunner who comes first and prepares the way. Malachi refers to that preparatory messenger. And then just after that, we read about a second messenger. It says, suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come. That's two different messengers listed there. A a preparatory one who comes first, and then the messenger of the covenant. So back in Malachi's day, when when a king came to town, he received a royal welcome. That's still true today. It was also true back then. Uh, Back then, the whole city would have to be gotten ready, would have to be prepared prior to the arrival of the king. And one of the things that citizens were often required to do, mandated to do in preparation for a visit from the king, was they had to prepare a well-constructed, smooth, broad approach road leading straight into the heart of the city. Back then, most roads uh, were not very good, were not very nice. So they probably didn't have a road like that yet if they'd never been visited by the king before. So they were required to build one, to make one, to get ready for the arrival of the king. And then the emperor would make his entrance down that road straight to the heart of the city. But in order to make sure everyone was ready to receive him, the emperor didn't lead that procession. He didn't go first. He didn't want to catch people off guard or or unprepared. And so they would send a herald or a messenger before him to prepare the way, to announce the news of his coming. Somebody would go first and say, I'm not the king, but the king's right behind me, so get ready. The king's coming. You don't have to treat me like the king. It's all right. I'm good. But I want you to be ready because he's coming, and when he comes, you better treat him like the king. Right? That's what the herald did. Make everybody get ready to know that the king is coming so that they can respond appropriately when he arrives. Now, using that image as a metaphor, God says that before he does finally come, before he does finally arrive in his temple, in the heart of the city, before he makes his way there, he's going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way. And so the people were not only supposed to acknowledge the darkness in the world, right? Be be honest, be realistic. This is a broken world. But they were supposed to be actively looking for a light bearer. Someone who would be a sign that the light was breaking through the darkness. Look for that guy. That's what Malachi is saying. That guy will be the sign. Look for him. He's going to be evidence that the light is breaking through the darkness. Now, of course, we know who that messenger was. We know they're talking about John the Baptist. When John himself was asked, who are you? In response, he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He knew what his role was. He knew who he was. Later, uh, God says, um, later in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, God is talking about a great and terrible day. And he says, that um, 
before that day comes, he's going to send the prophet Elijah. And in Matthew 11, Jesus picks up on that. And he says that John is actually the fulfillment of that prophecy. He's, Jesus says John is the Elijah who is to come. So the people of God were supposed to be looking for this messenger who would serve as an indicator that God had not forgotten his promises, but God was actively fulfilling them. Now we live, again, on the other side of those promises. We're no longer waiting for the arrival of John the Baptist. We're no longer waiting for the first arrival of the Messiah, but we're still looking for evidences of light. Signs that God has not forgotten his promises. Signs that God is still actively fulfilling his promises. Signs that God is still with us. And God continues to shine that light in the world through the body of Christ, through the church. We are that light now. Jesus still walks the earth today. He's the head, we're his body. God is everywhere, but the church is the place on earth where God dwells in a special way. And the church is now supposed to be the light shining in the darkness, declaring to the world that God still loves us, God is still with us, and God is coming back one day to establish his kingdom on earth. I think sometimes it's easy to forget that that's what we're here for. We are supposed to be a beacon of light, a city on a hill. We are supposed to be a place where the light and the love of God shines so brightly, so undeniably, that the rest of the world sees it and says, look, there must be something to what they believe because look at the way that they act. We're the light shining in the darkness, proclaiming both with our words and with our actions, prepare the way. Make straight his paths because the king is coming. We don't know exactly when, but we know the king will return. So be ready. Be prepared. Before Christ's arrival, God sent John the Baptist as the messenger to prepare the way. Before his second arrival, he sends his church to go and make disciples of all nations and to prepare the way for his return. And the final thing that we do while we await the return of the king is that we believe that the light will prevail. We believe it. We hope it. We hope it and we believe it. The light will prevail. Darkness doesn't win. The message of Malachi and the message of the whole Old Testament is fundamentally an optimistic, positive message. Right? Though it's a comedy in the sense that it ends well, it ends happy. Over and over again, the message is this things are hard, but one day they'll be good. Right? Over and over again in the Old Testament, you hear that message from the prophets, from the leaders, from the people, from the psalmists. Things are hard now, but one day they will be good. Things are a mess now because we've made them a mess. But one day, God will clean up our messes and God will make everything good again. Things were good, now they're not good, but they will be good. Over and over again, you hear that in the Old Testament. It's like a broken record over and over again. Things were good, things are not good, but one day, things will be good. That's an optimistic, positive message. It's a realistic message. It recognizes, well, we're in a moment right now when they're not good. But it's optimistic in the sense that it believes, really believes, that one day they will be good again. 
It's a recognition that sin is bad, sin does damage. But God's grace is greater than our sin, and in the end, grace wins. And so it is with this prophecy. Malachi rightly identifies some real problems, but our passage finishes with grace, with these words. I, the Lord your God, do not change. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And of course, we fit under that umbrella as well. We are the descendants of Jacob, by grace, through faith. And because the Lord does not change, we will not be destroyed. Ultimately, the light prevails. And it's important for us to believe that. That's what hope is. Hope is a belief that even though it might be dark today, ultimately, one day, it will all be light. Times were dark 2,000 years ago, and they're dark now. And they were dark back in Malachi's day. 2,000 years ago, God's people had been scattered and oppressed. God's people were not free to openly practice their faith. They were under the constant watchful eyes of the Roman government, a pagan government. God himself seems to have gone silent at this point in their history. There hadn't been a prophetic word in over 400 years. They had these wonderful promises in Scripture, but they didn't know when and they didn't know where they would ever be fulfilled. But into the darkness shone an unmistakable light. It was announced by a bright shining star that was leading the way to Bethlehem. It was proclaimed by a bright shining host of angels singing glory to God in the highest. And it was fulfilled by Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's one of the things that define us as the people of God. We are the people who walk in the light and who believe that ultimately the light will prevail. That's us. We walk in the light now, even though it's not all light all around us. We walk in the light and we believe that one day the light will prevail. That's us. And so we wait. We wait. The people of Malachi's day waited for 400 years. Now obviously that means that the actual people who knew Malachi, who knew what his voice sounded like, who knew what he looked like, who heard the prophecy from his lips, those people died before they saw it fulfilled, long before it was fulfilled. But they died hoping, they died believing, and they passed along that hope to their children who carried that torch of hope and passed it on to their children and on and on until it was fulfilled. And now today we find ourselves in the long line of the people who are waiting and watching and praying and hoping, believing that God will fulfill a particular promise. It's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus promised that one day he would return, right? He said that. He promised it. He said, I'm leaving now, but I will come back. So we wait and we hope. And what do we do while we wait? While we do what Malachi has been teaching us, while we wait, we acknowledge the very real darkness that we see in the world. We don't pretend that all here is as it should be. We mourn and we grieve the brokenness and the darkness in the world. 
We also acknowledge a very real darkness in our own hearts. And when we see it, we confess it, we repent of it, and we receive the Lord's forgiveness. And even while acknowledging the darkness, we look for the light and we shine with the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness of this broken world. We are the body of Christ and we actively fight against the pain and the suffering and the injustice and the oppression and the darkness. And we announce the good news that the Prince of Peace has come and entered into this world. And finally, we believe. We believe that ultimately darkness does not win, but the light prevails. We believe that one day the King will return. We believe that this story ends with a light that will never be extinguished. We believe that the light has shone in the darkness and that the darkness cannot and shall not overcome it. In the very last chapter of the whole big story, the whole big book of the Bible, the very last chapter in Revelation 22, we get this promise. And night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And that is our Christmas hope. Let's pray together. Holy Father, sometimes it is hard to wait. It is. It's hard to wait for short things. I know our, our young people are going to have a hard time this week waiting for Sunday morning and Christmas Day. It's hard. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait in a broken world to see brokenness around us and to see brokenness in our own hearts and to know that you've promised that one day you're going to fix this. And to wait for that day is hard. It's hard. And so I pray that you'd give us strength to endure. And to endure faithfully and patiently and joyfully. I pray that you'd keep the torch lit in our hearts. The torch of hope. Whereby we believe that the light overcomes the darkness. That darkness doesn't win. I pray that you'd enable us to hang on to that and to believe it. And to not just believe it, but be spreaders of the light, proclaimers of the kingdom, evidences that you still love us and that you're still with us and that you still will keep all of your promises. I pray that you enable us to do that while we wait. We wait believing, Lord Jesus, that you will come again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.